to Podiatry Today podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Assistant Editorial Director for Podiatry Today. And in this episode, we will talk with Erin Klein, DPM, about plantar plate pathology. She's a prolific researcher on this topic and was highlighted in part two to these accomplishments in our June 2022 Changemakers feature. Fellowship trained at the Weill Foot and Ankle Institute, Dr. Klein has published and presented numerous studies both in and out of the podiatric space. She recently had the ability to analyze and present a 10-year follow-up study on plantar plate repair. Dr. Klein's received more than 10 awards for her scientific manuscript podium presentations at various national meetings in just the past decade alone. Specifically, this is in addition to more than 40 research awards at national conferences over the past 10 years that she collaborated on. We're very grateful to have Dr. Klein with us today to share a little bit about the depth of her experience with this pathology, both in the lab and in clinical practice. Thank you so much for being with us today. Tell us a little bit about your experience with researching plantar plate pathology. So this is a very interesting story that I I hope people enjoy. When I was a third year resident, one of our attending, she was very creative in how she chose to teach us, which was kind of fun. And she brought in Plato one day and she handed us, um, there were six of us residents, so she handed us six foot models and she said, all right, so everyone's going to reconstruct um, a metatarsal phalangeal joint using Plato. And we all kind of laughed at her because this is something you would like, let's make something with Plato. It's kind of like a kindergarten teaching method. Um, surprisingly, it was very interesting to see what we chose to reconstruct because not one of us got it right. And I remember building that MTP and I remember taking the Plato and making a planner plate and being like, no, I don't think I've ever really seen this in the OR. So of course I started looking for it. Um, and it was right about that time that I interviewed for the fellowship at the Wild Foot and Ankle Institute. And on my interview day, the way interviews were done at that time, I spent my day in the OR with Dr. Wild Jr. And he had three different planner plate repairs. So I finally got to see this planner plate that I couldn't reconstruct with the Play-Doh actually live and in person. And it was interesting because I was training at a VA. So you can argue that the feet at the VA are a little bit different than the feet you're gonna see in private practice. but I had never seen the MTP joint or understood it the way that I did after I left the OR during my fellowship interview. And I remember thinking that day, God, I hope I get this fellowship because I would really like, that was awesome. Like that was so cool. Like thinking about how many, how many patients I had seen probably with plantar plate pathology that I didn't even recognize because I didn't understand it. So I was really excited to come to the Wildfoot and Angle Institute for fellowships, specifically to study the plantar plate and to study elective forefoot surgery, because it's something that we do here that's just, it's, it's done differently. And the level of understanding of the complex interactions of the forefoot is something that I, I don't think as a profession we underst- understand very well. Um, so to come here and then get to spend an entire year looking at so much, so many things related to the plantar plate um, was amazing. So that, that's how it all got started. And, and since then, um, between the OR, different cadaver labs that we've had the ability to conduct, um, spending time in the Rosalind Franklin Gross Anatomy Lab to understand um, some of that pathology a little better. Um, I think that's where I, I really started to understand what the planner plate was and how things started to interact. Um, because frankly, the dissection you can get on a cadaver is exceptionally different than what you can do on a live human being in the OR. Um, they're, they're not even comparable. So to have the ability as an attending 
um, fellow in attending to go back to a basic science lab and start to take things apart, to put them back together, to then take that knowledge and apply it to actual live humans that you're trying to treat was amazing. And from that, when I, that's, that's kind of where things started. And then we started to look at, well, if we understand this, how is it best to teach this to the rest of the world? That's what led us, led me and Dr. Wall Jr. to start to look at some of the, the studies that we've published. And it, we, we created a cohort of, um, of humans who had plantar plate repairs while I was a fellow. And from that cohort of humans, we were then able to um, extrapolate data because we had interoperative, um, interoperative observation on all of them. So we were able to say, okay, this is what we saw in the OR. Now let's go back and trace this backwards to what we should have seen on their clinical exam, on their x-rays, on the ultrasound, on the MRI, and, and then, you know, kind of start to compare some of those imaging modalities um, for, you know, for purposes of what's best. And that's, I think that's where things were. And I, that was 10 years ago. And since, since that time, I think that we were able to take the knowledge we acquired that year and start to apply it to patients over the next 10 years, which has really allowed us to do a, a lot of plantar plate work both uh, operative and non-operative, definitely more operative than non-operative because non-operative treatment doesn't work that great. Um, but we've been able to actually then see what, what we do in a clinic every day. Many of our researchers in podiatric medicine are brilliant, but don't spend a lot of time in clinic. I think that spending the amount of time in clinic in the OR that I do has actually allowed me to have a little bit of a different perspective on research that is based in science, but has a practical application to everyday life. And that's, that's really what we, what I strive to do um, with research is to take the problems I see in clinic and say, all right, this is a problem and then come up with ways to fix it. Once we find a way to fix it, then go back and research how we can make it better. So that's where a lot of the planner plate stuff has come, uh, come from. What's been interesting is our ability to travel to different conferences, both podiatric and orthopedic to have discussions with, um, with Mike Coughlin and a couple of the other orthopedics um, throughout the world that do forefoot and plantar plate stuff. And then from those conversations, we tend to have visitors in clinic from different countries that can then input what they're doing in their countries to, you know, to kind of compare it to what we're doing here. And we can have those high level discussions that allow us to really drive patient care forward. It's been an absolutely amazing journey. It's so cool to talk to people from really around the world about what they're doing and some of the things they're seeing and some of the, I guess, obstacles they face. I know in, in Brazil where that's, that's Kyle Neri who's down there and his group of orthopedics who are working on plantar plate stuff down there. It's interesting because they don't have nearly the amount of technology equipment or interoperative um, instrumentation to do some of the same things we do, yet they're able to still fix plantar plates after we have these discussions. And it's um, so that's been interesting to see how they're facing challenges and conquering them. I think your point about having a practical application to evidence-based research is, is so key because I think some people may feel a disconnect there and to be able to make that connection and make that, that bridge, that gap is huge. So it's, that is, it, it is so important. Um, I get so frustrated when I'm reading journals or articles and there's this point about how important this one thing is. And then you look at that one thing and you're like, well, that's, that's very interesting. I see why it's important, but um, yeah, out here in Libertyville, Illinois, I'm not really sure how I would, what question I would ask or what test I would obtain that would actually give me that information. So 
finding a way that someone in, we're going to say rural America versus someone in a teaching institution, like trying, trying to span that gap with research so that everybody can apply it is, it's a challenge. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as an exciting adventure, but it is a challenge. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I try to do. I think that is one way that I can use my brain. Um, I've been told it's a very special brain. Many of my partners here frequently tell me that the way my brain works is not the way everyone else's brain works. And I'm okay with that. I fought that for a long time, but I'm okay with that now because the way my brain works can potentially help patients that I don't even know about millions of miles away. And that's awesome for me. That's why I do what I do. When we're working through trying to figure out how to maximize outcomes, we've all found that the workup and the preoperative phase sometimes is one of the most important parts. So knowing that, what do you feel is the most important aspect of the workup for plantar plate pathology? I've thought about this question since I read it for a very long time. And I think it's suspecting the problem is there. If you suspect that there's a problem in a foot, let's say a plantar plate tear, you start to ask the questions that in your brain related to plantar plate tears. Once you start asking those questions, whether it be x-ray, ultrasound, MRI, whatever imaging modality you want, if you ask the question, you're more likely to find it. If you ignore the fact or say the plantar plate doesn't matter or say the plantar plate isn't a thing, if you don't give the plantar plate the time of day and you don't suspect it's there, you'll never find the pathology. So I think that's probably the most important thing is suspecting a problem is there. Because if you ask the questions, you will, you're going to find a better answer than if you just ignore it and don't ask the questions. So once you suspect that it's there and you identify that it's there, that now you've proven it, this is the million dollar question that there's probably not a good answer to. But in your opinion, in your experience, how do you go about deciding what the best procedure then is for this patient? So for this one, and for me, it's the procedure that we've done thousands of times here. It's, it's the dorsal approach, um, direct repair of the plantar plate from the dorsal via a wild metatarsal osteotomy. Um, for me, that one is the one that's best. It's the one, um, it didn't come out first. I think you can argue there were other techniques first, but it's the, that particular technique you perform your while, you, you push the while back and fix it with a temporary pin. And then you can see so much of the plantar plate um, and so much of the pathology that occurs on the dorsal aspect of the plantar plate that, that that way you can fix it, move your osteotomy back out to the proper length, put a screw in it, and then get the patient back to life. There are many sets out there that are many techniques that have come, um, particularly since the dorsal approach via the while metatarsal osteotomy was published. I find that many of them are, the incisions are a little bit bigger. The dissection is a little bit more. Um, so that for me is not the best. Like the one that works best for me is the, it's the, com- it's the complete uh, plantar plate repair system with Arthrex. Um, and I don't know if that's the, if that is because that's how I was trained. That's the one I'm the most comfortable with. Um, that's the particular procedure. I've seen everything I think that could possibly go wrong in the OR with that procedure go wrong. And I've seen us be able to get those patients better. So I have a lot of confidence in that particular technique. Now, is everyone going to have that confidence? No. Is, is that the technique for everyone? Definitely. Not. But for me as a human, and as a physician and a surgeon, that's the one that I'm the most comfortable with. What's your typical post-op course for that technique? 
So with this technique, um, they come out of the OR, they're blocked, they are in a bandage and they are in a surgical shoe. Now, some of this does depend on what other procedures were performed, but just assuming we're doing, so th that part I think is obvious. And if you're doing um, a lapidus with this or you're doing some, uh, some uh, first MTP joint fusion, things may change. Um, but for someone who just isolated second MTP plantar plate repair with a while osteotomy, um, they're gonna be in a bandage in a surgical shoe. They're sent home that day, they are told, go home, keep your foot up. You're allowed to walk on your feet, but where you're allowed to go is very restricted. So we're a little bit strict, I think that first week with how they're allowed to weight bear. They're allowed to weight bear enough to get from like the couch to the bathroom, the bathroom to the kitchen, the kitchen back to the couch with the understanding that they're walking primarily on their heel and that they are not doing too much at any one point in time. Um, one of the key things I find to tell patients in that first week is if your foot starts throbbing, if the bandage starts feeling tight, or if your pain's getting better and then all of a sudden gets worse, you, you did something that your foot doesn't like. So you have to let your body talk to you and tell you what to do. If you convince people that first week to really be very sedentary, um, maybe convince them that Netflix marathons, like they haven't seen Tiger King yet, go watch it, what have you, Bridgerton, that's another one um, that I've been hearing from patients that they like to watch that first week, but go sit, stream the marathon, like really don't do anything. Patients typically do so well that when they come into the office, they have for that first post-op visit, which is somewhere between day seven and 10, they have very little pain. That's good. I don't like phone calls about people in pain. It really, and then people don't like being in pain. So that's a good thing. So their first post-op visit is day seven to 10. Um, on that day, the dressing comes off. We take a look at the incision. Obviously we expect that it's gonna look amazing. If it looks less than amazing, we address whatever problem it is. Typically, if everything is perfect, they will go into a stiff-soled wide running shoe. That could be a Brooks, that could be a Hoka, that could be, maybe they don't have access to those. That could be a less amazing running shoe with a Morton's extension or a full length steel insert in that shoe because you want the shoe to be stiff. So they are put into that shoe with a compression sock, either to the ankle or the knee, whatever feels better to them. And then they start physical therapy on that day as well. And that's key, but we're going to pause on that for a second and go back to the footwear and the weight bearing restrictions. So at this point, we tell patients that they can be on their foot somewhere. It equates to about five to 10 minutes at a time for about an, a total amount of an hour in a day. So the guideline we give them is what, however many weeks you are from surgery, that is the total amount of time in the day that you can be on your foot. So if you are one week out from surgery, you have a total of one hour in that day, you can be on your foot for the entire week until you get to two weeks and then it goes up to two hours. What we find patients doing is they're on their foot to about five to 10 minutes at a time at that point. And they're like, I got to sit down. And then the next week it's about 10 minutes, maybe 12. And then the week after that, they're about up to 15. And the math doesn't always quite work, but there's a slow progression of weight bearing during that time. The compression stocking or sock and their shoe, it, it goes on their foot in the morning and it, it stays on their foot the entire day. And patients are like, well, what if the shoe gets tight or what if it starts to hurt? I'm like, well, typically when that happens, you've been on your foot too much and don't take the shoe and sock off because that's our natural instinct. Sit down and put your foot up until it goes away. 
And interestingly, I've found that concept actually slows people down more than weight bearing restrictions for what that's worth. So that's that they're allowed to shower because we use um, internal um, internal subcuticular closure with steri strips. So they're allowed to shower and get their foot wet. They are not allowed to soak their foot, do anything like that. And then the other part of the post-op that goes with their physical therapy is their bracing their toe in as much plantar flexion as they can obtain slightly uncomfortably. And they wear that brace every night, probably for the next six to eight weeks, maybe longer. The point of the bracing is to keep the extensor tendons nice and lengthened because the extensor tendons, if you don't lengthen them, they are going to naturally contract, which then leads to toes floating. It leads to the toes inability to get to the floor and it actually can stretch the plantar tissues that we're trying to protect. Now, physical therapy, they start physical therapy on that first post-operative visit. Physical therapy is aimed at mobilization and decreasing scar tissue initially. So there's a lot of education on the bracing, a lot of pulling the toe into plantar flexion. Once the incision is healed, which is sometime in the next week, patients start with intrinsic muscle work on the foot. So this includes um, toe crunches and toe curls, picking marbles up with their toes, picking pencils up with their toes. In doing that, they're also working on stretching their Achilles and addressing any other functional deficit the therapist finds in the foot. Now, they're also, if they've had another procedure, working on whatever they need for that procedure too. But what we find is that so many of these patients really, actually many people, lack intrinsic strength in the intrinsic muscles of the foot. So these are your lumbricals, your interosseous muscles. We don't think much of those little guys, but really they do a lot of things and they're very important. So the therapy is mostly aimed at that. Once the osteotomy is healed, then we progress to normalized weight bearing and things of that nature. So that's the first post-operative visit. There's a lot of things that go on at that visit. Our next visit is somewhere between three and four weeks later, which is more of an incision check than anything else. As the patient progresses after that first month, um, I find that it's important to tailor your post-operative protocol to what the patient is able to do, because there is a frustration that occurs between weeks four and six as to why am I not better yet? And then you remind the patient, we talked about this pre-op, it's a long post-op recovery, and you have to kind of address the mental component of their healing. Right about week six to eight, patients are released to do weight-bearing exercise to their tolerance. Now, me saying they can do this and them wanting to do it, two completely different things. But at the point that the second metatarsal is healed, like they can start to be up and around, weight bear a little more, start to walk a little more. Somewhere between three and six months, and that is a big time frame, but it, it's also very variable. Patients start to have days where they forget they had foot surgery. Somewhere between months six and nine, patients are having more good days than bad. And somewhere around 12 months, we consider that, quote, maximal medical improvement, for lack of a term. With that, there's also the concept that that's in an optimal course. Now, if patients aren't doing so well, many times the physical therapy can be extended for quite some time. Probably the most common complication is dorsal scar tissue at the MTP that's painful and limiting. I find patients don't really care if their toes touch the floor and if their toes float a little bit, but if they hurt, then that matters. So if they're continuing to have pain, continuing to have problems, right around month 12, we consider releasing that dorsal scar tissue with a percutaneous procedure. It's, it's done in the OR, but it's just a percutaneous procedure to cut through some of that scar tissue and then manipulate that toe down into plantar flexion. Then they continue with physical therapy really aimed at lengthening all that scar tissue. Um, that takes about three months to recover from that. 
So to sort of conclude things today, is there anything else that you have learned along the way that you'd really like to share with our audience on the topic of plantar plate pathology? Think about plantar plate pathology. When you have forefoot pain, you have to think about plantar plate pathology. I, I find that if you think that it's there, if you're suspicious that it's there, you order the right testing, you're going to find that it's there. And this isn't something where you can be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand. You actually need to address it. I think that there is a learning curve for this and it's an interesting learning curve because it's not just learning how to work the instrumentation, not just learning the procedure. I mean, you can watch, there's YouTube videos out there. You can watch many of us do this and know how to do this. What I find though, is you have to be patient with yourself, right? Because surgeons are high achieving individuals. We, we want it. We want it our way. We want it now. We don't want to struggle. But the fact of the matter is to learn a new surgery is actually rather challenging. So you have to be patient with yourself. While you're in the OR, one must remain calm because let's face it, stuff goes wrong all the time. Like equipment doesn't work. Something doesn't show up. Panicking does not help. Um, and being grumpy does not help um, because if you're grumpy, everyone else in the room is going to be grumpy and then everyone's going to make mistakes. And that's when stuff goes really bad. So remaining calm even if you're fuming on the inside, remaining calm in your face and your demeanor and your nonverbal communication is probably really key. And then the other thing is tr trust the repair and get these folks into physical therapy. So frequently when we get second opinions or when we have to redo plantar plate repairs that others have done, I find that the, the key thing that was missing was adequate physical therapy. And if I didn't say it, trust yourself. Trust yourself, trust your gut, trust your training, trust your hands, trust your brain, trust yourself. Because this is something that it, it's a procedure that you can learn to do. You can learn to do it very well, but trust yourself. That's wise advice for sure. And we're very grateful to you, Dr. Klein, for joining us today for this episode of Podiatry Today podcast. And thanks as always to the listeners for joining us as well. Make sure to check out other episodes on podiatrytoday.com, Spreaker, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite podcast platforms.